Valerie's my mother's name. Rush is for white suburban boys. Anybody remember cassettes? My tumor was the Beyonce of uterine fibroids. This is the soundtrack series. The soundtrack series. The soundtrack series. Hey there, this is the Soundtrack Series, stories about songs, the soundtrack to our lives, part of the Infinite Guest Network from American Public Media. I'm Dana Rossi. Happy New Year, everybody. Oh, finally in 2015. Finally, we're going to get shoes that have power laces. I swear I read an article that said that we were totally going to get those. Coming up later on the show, Saida Blount falls head over heels for Depeche Mode. Yet another thing my parents didn't know that I was doing is that every Sunday night, I was sneaking out of bed, turning the TV to the lowest volume available, and watching a TV show called 120 Minutes. (laughs) But first, I hope you had a great holiday. I did. Now that we're in 2015, now that we're in January, we are definitely hitting the ground running as far as what we have going on, not only for this year, but already just for January. Thursday, January 15th, we'll be back in Austin at the North Door for a blend show that we're doing with the immensely popular show there, Bedpost Confessions, which will be soundtrack series plus Bedpost Confessions presents Sex Track, stories about music and sex. So that's at the North Door in the Austin, the Texas, this Thursday. 8 p.m. And then the following week, Wednesday, January 21st, we will be back in New York City, but for the first show ever that we're doing at QED. QED is a new venue in Astoria in Queens, and it is owned by soundtrack series favorite Cambry Cruz. You've heard her stories here on the show. And that venue's taken off like nobody's business and becoming quite the little hot spot in Astoria. And so we're going to do shows there. We're going to do a show Wednesday, January 21st, with stories from playwright Mariah McCarthy, performer Rebecca Vigil. She does the show Your Love, Our Musical, which is hilarious at the pit. Also, Noah Tarno, who you might know as the host of The Big Quiz Thing, which is in every city everywhere. It's the best live trivia show ever. And comedian Jeffrey Joseph. He's been on The Tonight Show everywhere. So that's going to be a lot of fun. And then speaking of doing shows at QED, we're going to be a regular installment at QED the first Saturday of every month starting in February. So we're hitting the ground running. And I'm actually pretty excited to do that because I've been on vacation really for the last month. Like TV production is very quiet at the end of the year. And so there's not much going on. So I've been on vacation. And so mostly what I've been doing is watching Gilmore Girls. God, I'm so happy they put that on Netflix. I actually didn't watch it the first time around, like when it was first on. I didn't know too much about it, but I am so obsessed. I love how they use music in this show, how they use it to score, even when it's a tiny little throwaway joke that you're only going to get if you're really, really listening. Like there's a scene one time in one of the town hall meetings where Taylor Dozy, the guy that runs those meetings and he has the market, he says something. He's he's pissed and he says something like, oh, well, whatever. Never mind. Ah, smells like teen spirit right there. And if you're not really, really listening and going, oh, yeah, wait a minute. Is he you'd miss it. But when you do get it, oh, it's like in Almost Famous when you see when the car turns, when he's sitting in the car and then you, the car turns and you see the reflection off the windshield. That's the the prism on the cover of Dark Side of the Moon. And when you catch it, you just are 
proud of yourself. It's, it's, it's that kind of thing. But the creator of the show, Amy Sherman Palladino, she didn't use a, a music supervisor. I was doing research on her and she was talking about the music in the show. And she said they didn't use a music supervisor that she and her husband, Daniel, who was also a producer on the show, they handpicked every piece of music that appeared in that show. And she is a master of the art of using music that serves the story and adds to the story, but doesn't reiterate the story or, or make a joke out of it. Actually, there was a 2010 interview, I think, that she did with a publication called Outsmart. And she went so far as to say, and I'm, I'm going to read a quote, I think music on television is just uniformly dreadful. It is mundane. It says nothing. They use it to say, here's a funny moment. It's, it's not an extension of the drama. It's distraction. It's like, I'll distract you so you won't know how shitty this show is. She's great. And then the interviewer says it's like a laugh track. And she says that to me is what music on television is. They score everything from beginning to end so that after a while, the music is just like white noise. It's not given its due, its place. Everything has its place. Shows would go by and we wouldn't put a lot of music in because to me, the music was an extension of the drama. So if you just throw it in under everything, it's like throwing a washing machine sound effect in there. It's not the point of it. Beautifully put. And that philosophy is apparent in every music choice she makes on Gilmore Girls. Whether it's the la-la that, that Sam Phillips contributes to the show, which goes throughout almost every episode, or the popular songs they put at key moments. I could give you all of my favorite musical moments from Gilmore Girls, but we would be sitting here for a good four hours. So I narrowed it down to three. Three of my absolute favorite musical moments in Gilmore Girls, although I know the second that I say these three and then I wrap it up, I'm going to think of 10 more that, oh, I should have done that one instead. So we're just going to make a choice. And I'm going to say these are three of my favorite musical moments in the Gilmore Girls, starting with I Try by Macy Gray. This was in the pilot. I don't even know that I remember exactly what scene this was in. I, I watched the pilot a while ago now. And by a while, I don't mean back in 2000 when the show started. I mean four months. But my favorite thing about the use of that song in general, wherever in the episode, was to tell future watchers of the show, perhaps our new alien overlords, when we're eventually attacked and dominated, that this episode, this moment, in this episode, most definitely took place in the year 2000 and not one minute later. It's one thing, an easier thing, really, when a show takes place in the year it's made, which is the case for Gilmore Girls. But it's another trickier thing when a show or a movie takes place in a year before the year it's made. And the trap there is trying to create too much of the world of that year that the year is shoved in your face. Some shows like Freaks and Geeks do this amazingly. One moment I'm thinking about is where Sam, Bill, and Neil are all in Sam's room and fighting about something. And on the radio in the background is Reminiscing by Little River Band. Because that song in 1980 would very likely have been on the radio. It says nothing about those three boys, if they listen to it, if they don't, if they would make fun of it, whatever. It's just the radio was on and that song would be on the radio. It colors. It adds to the scene. Freaks and Geeks, great show for that. Others, not so much. It's like, did we mention that the year is 1994? You know what? That's what I got from the movie. I don't know if you remember this movie, The Wackness. Do you remember The Wackness? It came out around the same time as Juno, maybe a little bit later. 
and everyone is talking a little bit too much about Kurt Cobain. Like, in case you forgot, this is supposed to be 1994. It's like, we get it, you know? And Gilmore Girls had a bit of an advantage where it's like the pilot took place in the year that the pilot was made. But still, Macy Gray, I try 2000. This is exactly where we are. Perfect. All right. Another one I really love, the man who sold the world, David Bowie. This is when Dave First Kisses Lane. First Kiss songs. This show does them well. Hello. Then she appeared when Jess and Rory first kiss at a gas station. But this one is great as a moment because the song is hinted at earlier in the episode. So Dave, you may remember, I should have said spoilers at the beginning of this. Sorry. Spoilers. Spoilers. Dave, Lane's love interest, also then her bandmate, he plays the first seven or so notes during Lane's mother's Thanksgiving before launching into another religious hymn because that's what Lane's mother hired him to do that day was just play religious songs on guitar all day. And so at one moment, though, as a little wink to Lane, he plays the first seven notes of The Man Who Sold the World because it's likely that knowing that Lane's mother wouldn't know what that song was, but Lane would. And so it's a little private moment between them, a way of winking at her a way of sharing an intimate secret. I like you and you like me, but we can't quite let everybody know about that yet. And so when they kiss, it's this song again as a throwback to those notes he played only to her earlier. But also, P.S., Bowie, sexually charged, even when he's not necessarily intending to be. Even though this song is about doppelgangers or multiple facets to your personality or figuring out every part of yourself. There's something very sexy, very we are about to be naughty together in those first notes. And it's like the the checkoff rule about showing a gun in the first act that must be fired by the third act. If the man who sold the world is played as a private joke between two lovers in act one, they must suck face to it by act three. It's a rule. And finally, I love Wedding Bell Blues, The Fifth Dimension, which plays in the scene where Emily and Richard are having their wedding vow renewal party and their reunion after their separation. And this is a song that has always meant very much to them as a couple. Was it it their original wedding song? I can't remember. I watch this show a lot, but I also go outside sometimes, so I can't really remember. But they dance to it. It's a lovely moment. But what's odd, slash perfect, slash odd again, slash perfect again about this is that, especially if it was part of their original vows, it's more a song about longing and the possibility that Bill might not want to marry her. So there's more doubt and longing in this song than the resolution of a happy ending. So it's not quite the perfect wedding or reunion song, but the perfect song for what's really going on in this scene, which is Rory propositioning an unsure Logan not knowing at all where their relationship was going, only wanting to know what it's like to be with him in that way. And Lorelai on thin ice with Luke because Emily has invited Christopher to this ceremony in the hopes that Lorelai will reunite with him and leave Luke, which eventually does cause Luke to storm out. It's the more imperfect relationship scenarios that the song complements. Uncertainty and longing, even frustration, all during what is otherwise known as a happy occasion. Wedding Bell Blues. Exactly. The show just does it right. It has fun with music. And the importance of each song to the creators of the show is crystal clear in how they choose to use it. And that's when it's done right. And that's when I can't get enough.
Bell Blues by the Fifth Dimension. I love this song. It's so sad and so putting it all out there, however shakily. But people do use it at weddings. I got to admire that because they're acknowledging that relationships aren't perfect. Okay. Our story for this episode is from the music events manager and producer at NPR Music, Saida Blount. And it's her story about how Depeche Mode, specifically the documentary Depeche Mode 101, changed her teenage life and delivered her directly to the people and the place where she felt most at home. Picture it if you will. It is 1989. The most neon-filled, yuppie-filled decade is about to end. George Bush I is entering the White House. Michael Jackson was named the king of pop. The car company Yugo goes out of business. And to make many of us in the audience feel very old, both Daniel Radcliffe and Taylor Swift were born. (laughs) That's 1989, people. It was also the year that a black and white documentary about four leather-clad, metal-beating boys from Basilton, Essex, burst onto the silver screen and changed me into the young lady you see before you today. I am talking about the one the only, the film phenomenon known as Depeche Mode 101. (laughs) Again, it's 1989. I'm a high school freshman in my hometown of Kansas City, Missouri. I'm wearing a lot of belted long sleeve shirts over sweatpants and wearing Reebok high tops. And I am considered a cutting edge fashion innovator. My high school is truly in the suburbs. By all accounts, I was a pretty model-only child. Um, I was somewhat shy. I spent a lot of time in my bedroom reading and listening to music. I studied a lot. I was polite. All in all, my parents had done a pretty bang-up job of raising a great black nerd. (laughs) But little did they know that two years prior, I had received a rather strange and random gift from my friend Max, who was considered the strange kid in our school. (laughs) I remember this day like it was yesterday. I'm standing by my middle school locker. Max kind of slinks up and goes, hey, you like music, right? And I'm like, um, yeah, yeah, sure. And he shoves this shoebox in my hand and just scurries off. And I'm like, oh, okay. I opened the shoebox and it's filled with cassette tapes. And it was like 20 or so different tapes from a bunch of groups like Susie and the Banshees, The Cure, Echo and the Bunnymen, and of course, Depeche Mode. Needless to say, Max had blown my mind. (laughs) Before this box entered my world, I was the typical top 40 MTV watching kid. And you know what? That was cool and it was okay. But now, I became absolutely obsessed. I was buying copies of Enemy, 
the face spin reading about all of these crazy alt goth bands <laughs> from the uk and i was loving it i was making my mom drive me to this area of town called westport in kansas city that was slightly in midtown a little bit dodgy and making her drive me around to all the record stores so i could like make sure i had missed anything that had been released <laughs> and buying tons of posters from my wall and I somehow had also convinced my jazz-loving dad <laughs> to buy me a stereo with a double cassette player <laughs> so I could make mixtapes and hand them out to all of my friends. <laughs> and you know, to this day, I give my parents a lot of props because they must have been like, what the fuck? <laughs> that their normal, nerdish, mellow kid had somehow been replaced with an absolutely raving lunatic pre-goth. <laughs> so yet another thing my parents didn't know that I was doing is that every Sunday night, I was sneaking out of bed, turning the TV to the lowest volume available and watching a TV show called 120 Minutes. <laughs> So for those who don't know, 120 Minutes is geared towards alternative music, as well as like the same bands I mentioned before, the Smiths, yada, yada, yada. So I'm watching this, and then one night, the band Depeche Mode is on, and they're talking about their new album, Music for the Masses. And so I'm totally geeking out and listening, and I catch a little bit that they said, we're gonna be releasing a concert movie next year and I lose my shit. <laughs> Obviously, bands like Depeche Mode never came to Kansas City. It just didn't happen. So I made it my fucking life mission that I was going to see this documentary as soon as it hit the big screen. By this time, my best friend Deb and my best friend Julie had been or excuse me, indoctrinated into even better, indoctrinated into the cult of alt-goth. <laughs> And so we made a pledge amongst us that we would track the news, read all the magazines, and find out when this movie came. Then one day on 120 Minutes, there was an ad saying that Depeche Mode 101 was being released. We made plans like a mofo. <laughs> we, we rallied up, we bought tickets. This is in the day where you just couldn't go online. We went downtown bought tickets in advance, and held on to them, tacked them up, <laughs> ready for this movie. So for those of you that are unfamiliar with the genius of Depeche Mode 101, let me give you the $2 summary. The movie follows a group of young fans who are traveling across America on a tour bus because they won a Depeche Mode contest where they basically had to go to a nightclub and dance. <laughs> and they got chosen. And so they're on a bus doing a road trip across the country. Everything's taken care of. And it all culminates with them landing in Los Angeles for their massive last show, the number 101, it's number 101 of the tour at the Rose Bowl. So that whole behind the scenes of what's going on on the bus with these kids is interspersed with clips from the concert. So you get to see the band performing and dancing and having fun while you see what's going on with these kids. So many people think that that movie is what gave MTV the idea to do um, the real world. Luckily, Kansas City had an art movie theater. And so me and my friends show up on the day, this Saturday, 
We walk in and everything changed for me. I looked around and there was a wall-to-wall sea of goths, plaid-shirted alternative kids, new wave mohawks, and Morrissey-style pompadours. <laughs> it was like the kids from London that were in the face had taken a plane and flown and dropped in the middle of the Midwest, and I didn't know what to do about it. Where were these kids hiding out? I was like, where do you live and why have I never seen you before? We're totally in like little polo shorts and gap shorts and we sit on down and we're just excited. I'm sure they must have been like, who are these kids? But we were psyched. So the movie begins. We're dying. So we're bobbing along, sitting in the seats, the music's playing, and then all of a sudden we notice that everyone is getting out of their seats and dancing in the aisles. We're like, you can do this in movies? <laughs> so it took me about three or four songs before I felt brave enough to get up. And by that time, everyone is just dancing, jumping on seats. No managers have shown up. No one cares. Everyone's having the time of their lives. So two hours and 16 seconds later, the lights come up in the screen room. And all I know is that Deb's mom picked us up and dropped me off. But it's all a blank because everything changed. I have never seen anything like that. I've never seen people dancing like that. In my eyes, these tour bus kids were the greatest people that lived on the planet. <laughs> like me, in their own personal lives, these kids had totally found something in the music of Depeche Mode that made sense for them. The power in that screening room was really real. 101 changed all of our lives. Over the next few months, it became really obvious from my friend Deb and I, who is still one of my best friends to this day, that everything had changed. We were on the road to becoming full alternagos. Our friend Julie, however, was pretty much with us in spirit, but she kind of enjoyed still wearing Benetton jerseys and hanging out with soccer dudes. So she really didn't follow through. But at the end of 1989, 101 came out on VHS. Julie got a copy for Christmas. And for the next year or so, every weekend, before Julie abandoned ship on us and started dating a soccer guy and hanging out with all their girlfriends, we would watch it in her basement. We learned every dance. We learned every line of dialogue by heart. And by the end of each viewing, I knew there was a much bigger music world out there. And come hell or high water, I knew I was gonna get the hell out of the Midwest. Thank you. Love her, And I love that moment where the guy at her school gives her the box of tapes and unlocks a whole new world. It's like in Almost Famous. Ah, that's my second reference to Almost Famous this episode. I think I should probably watch it on Netflix where his big sister leaves him that box of records and opens up a whole new world for him. I didn't have that big sister or that friend who passed me a shoebox of tapes. But like Saida, I did have 120 minutes. And that's it. That's our episode for this go-round. This has been the Soundtrack Series. And hey, if you're around, come check us out in Austin at the North Door, Thursday, January 15th, 8 p.m. Or in New York City at QED Astoria, Wednesday, January 21st, also at 8 p.m. 
And as always, you can find us right where you found us, on iTunes and as part of Infinite Guest. This has been the Soundtrack Series, part of the Infinite Guest Network from American Public Media. Thanks for listening.